All right, uh, the ushers will be coming down the aisles to bring Bibles, pens, good advice, well wishes. They bring a lot of things, I think. But um, uh, my name's Mark, uh, Mark Briggs. I'm actually, I've been going to LifePoint for about 10 years or so, and I'm on the elder team. I, I preached last service, and, and it's been a while since I've done this. Uh, so many bad reviews, it just, I just didn't have a chance. But uh, anyway, so if you're wondering, I, I'm part, part of the church family. I've known Chris since we were in college. And if you think he's quirky now, rewind 25 years, and it's quite a story. But that's a whole different, that's a whole different thing. Chris, you're in this one, aren't you? Sorry about that. Um, before we get going on the message, I'm going to just uh, hit some announce, uh, a key announcement that I want you thinking about. We're in a series that's called Compassionate Christmas and it's more than a series. It's a vision uh, for where we as a church want to move ahead uh, through the season. Derek will talk a little bit more about that at the end of the service. But last week, if you were here, if you weren't here, go listen to the podcast. I think it'll really set this up well for you or watch it on our website. But he talked about how we serve a God of compassion and that in this world, there are about 2 billion people that live in extreme poverty. And of those 2 billion people, 600 million of these are children. And often we can feel uh, the, the tension of, what can I do? What difference can I make? And, and that problem is so big. And so what we as a church have decided to do as a leadership is see if we can make a dent in one of these countries. And so uh, before we get going on this message, I just want to say um, that we want to do some of, something outside of us this Christmas and have our LifePoint family work uh, to solve this problem in a community called Chone, Ecuador. Um, several years ago, about 70 or 80 families uh, committed to sponsor uh, kids through the uh, ministry called Compassion International. And what they do is provide medical relief, medical care, meet basic needs uh, for $38 a month and change. And so what this partnership means is not only do we help sponsor children, but we're actually going to help uh, provide through our over and above offerings, again, they'll get into more detail later, uh, our above and over and above offerings the rest of the year to help build a church facility in this community. So not, so, and Compassion uses these facilities to like impact the kids in meeting basic needs. And so what a light in this community that we get to be a part of from a distance where we could help provide care for kids in a context where they're going to be drawn into the church as the church meets those needs for the community. And so more details are coming, but be thinking about how you can be a part of this. I mean, there is no better way to be involved in what God's doing than when you care for a child. And today, while we're not talking about for the bulk of our sermon, there's connection. Really, we'll be talking a little bit in just a moment about, you know, what can God do through the life of a child? And this is a specific opportunity uh, for you and your family uh, with really pennies compared to the, the rest of our wealth in this country to make an impact on a life. But as we move into this Christmas season, you know, one of the things I like to do most uh, as it gets... Uh, close to Christmas. I don't do this every year. Sometimes we do it with our kids. Is I like to begin rereading uh, the Christmas story. And you know churches all over the country, you know what they're going to talk about when it gets to Easter and when it gets to December. Uh, and, you know, it's, you've kind of heard that sermon. Uh, you kind of know what it is before you even get there. And that makes it a little hard for pastors. I mean, I have some empathy on Chris and the team because what they have to do is they have to come up with something fresh and new every year on this. And so, you know, maybe that's why uh, he called
called me recently and said, hey, Mark, what are you doing uh, December 15th? And so I'm happy to be a part of the solution, Chris. And so uh, actually we were talking politics and he said, do you believe in free speech? And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. He says, can you come give one? And so anyway, <laughs> he, he's snaky like that. But no, it, it really, you know, the Christmas story, again, the, the problem like anything is we can get used to it. We just get so used to it, and, and, and this time, if, if we could understand the depth of it, we could actually read the story, and it's so profound. It's so powerful. I think that's all we would need to do. But as I was reading through it, I was struck by something that I know is true of me, and I think it's true of you, and it certainly intersects with this incredible story. And the question that comes to mind is, isn't it amazing how we, all at different stages of our life, have an insatiable desire to make sense out of life, to make sense out of the details of life, that I don't want anything to be random. I want everything to make sense. I want all to fit together in such a way that I can look back at my life. And, you know, if this tree, uh, the, the decorations here could uh, you know, represent that, and everything just makes sense. You see where all the pieces go, where it all fits together. And I want to be able to say everything makes sense in my life. And this is all in us. It's not just a Christian thing. It's not just a religious thing. You know, we want life to mean something. We want the things that happen to us in life to have purpose. You know, you're so, you want to meet the person you're supposed to meet. You want to get engaged. You want to get that cool promotion. You want to see your child graduate from college. You have the birth of a child. Maybe have those in reverse order. But every time someone hands me an event or I experience an event, I know exactly where it goes, and I want to make sure everything fits. You see, it's so much a part of human nature that we actually develop terminology with this. There's actual terminology we use to reinforce this just in society. For example, we say everything happens for a what? A reason. You go in through somewhat, something tough, and there's always someone there. Well, everything happens for a reason. They may not have any faith at all, but they all want to believe that. And it's, though, that's easy to kind of pick apart if you're really skeptical, going, really, everything? Everything? You know, sometimes it doesn't make sense, but people want to hang on to that. Or you say, well, that was a coincidence, and someone, usually the spiritual person in the room goes, I don't believe in coincidences. You know, people say that, and you're like, well, I do. Sometimes it's just a coincidence, but we like it all to fit together. And, you know, where this really comes home is when we hit a big bump in life. Like, like if we experience a tragedy, it's in human nature to ask the question, why? Why did you allow this to happen? Um, why did, you know, God allow that to happen? We all want to know why. And so when you're facing a big tragedy, you're facing something that creates extraordinary pain, there's something in you that wants to figure out, where do I hang this? Like on that figurative tree, you know, where, where does that go? Like divorce. No one plans on divorce. That's not part of the master plan. You plan to meet someone and, and you know, get engaged, get married, have kids, have 2.8 children, you know, whatever the stats are. And you don't plan for that to fall apart. That wasn't in the plan. You go, why? God, why is this happening to me? And where does it fit. You know, I don't even want to know where this is in my life. I want it not to be a part of my life. There's some in here, you're the person you never thought you would lose a job. I mean, if people would ask, who's the one who's just never going to have a problem with that? And they'll say Steve or Dale or Eric. And you know what? 
Many of you have. And you're just like, that's not what I'm supposed to do. This doesn't make sense. And you're without a job, and you're like, okay, God, that wasn't my plan. I want my life to make sense, but right now this doesn't make sense to me. Or sickness, relationship issues, many, many other things that we wrestle with. You know, you ask the question, why is that? Why is that in you? What's wrong with you? You know, what's wrong with me? Um, I have this little black and brown dapple-colored dachshund. His name's Charlie. Uh, most of you have been in my house know him as Charlie because we're always yelling because he's not very bright. Really manly dog if you haven't seen a uh, black and brown little dachshund. But, um, you know, he's not worried about that, the stuff that we're worried about. He gets up in the morning. He always wants to go out. You know, he goes to the bathroom, comes back, he eats, and then he sleeps. Repeat the cycle. Repeat the cycle over and over again. And I don't think he lays there and goes, you know, I wonder how this nap connects to yesterday's nap. You know, I wonder if this is going somewhere. When I was at the dog park and, you know, Rover didn't let me sniff his rear. What was the whole point? You know, I'm just kind of thinking the way we think, it's unique in us. Dogs don't worry about that. I apologize. I almost said but. But there's something in you and there's something in me. We just want it to make sense. And the cool thing is Christians, we have an answer for that. Christians believe that everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, Christians believe that everybody was made in the image of God. And God is a purposeful God. And God's involved in history. And he sees things sequentially. He sees them from beginning to end. And he can bring order where there's chaos. And he can bring design to where there is no design. And this thing in you that wants to find sense and make sense out of everything in life and connect all the dots, I really believe, you know, that's God's image in you. We want order. And for some of you in this room, this may be actually why you came to faith. You were living your own life. You were achieving your own goals. You were autonomous. You were independent. You were in control. But then at some point in your life, it was like a pebble in your shoe. Just going, man, I just can't get past it that... This isn't enough. And it was empty because it wasn't connected to anything. That draws people to Christ because we have a God of order. That's the image of God, the image of God that says there is a purpose, there is a plan, and you don't always know what it is, and sometimes it fits together perfectly, and other times you're never going to know where to fit it. But that thing in you that longs to create, connect the dots, and that, that's the image of me and you, he's saying to us through all of this. Because I'm a God of purpose. I'm a God of order. I'm a God that connects things. And even if you don't know how they connect, I eventually bring about the thing that you know is true. And that things work out, things move forward. He can redeem bad things into good. And now in our time today, all of that collides with this Christmas story. Because the Christmas story in some ways is the preeminent example it's the best example of God dipping down into the randomness of life, the insignificance of life, the chaos, and reminding us that there is a plan. There is design. In the Christmas story, it's a picture of God intervening, mixing it up with us, getting involved in the affairs of mankind in a way that it's unmissable, that it's unmissable that there is a God who understands there's a God who cares about us. And there's a God who uses the most unlikely situations and the most unlikely people to carry out his purpose. And in some cases, this case today, it's someone who's 
really, if they lived in California today, would be considered a child, a teenager, who never imagined she would have the impact that she has. You know, in this season, again, we're focusing on investing in children, uh, you know, in South America. And these children are in a place where they probably don't have the pedigree. You're not going to expect a lot to come from that town. They may not have any perceived external value uh, by others in the world and could be the last people to ever make an impact. But God chose to use a child, a teenager, to put at the epicenter of the most significant event in human history. And we lose that in, in, in the monotony and getting used to it and, and the repetition of, of this story. And so what I want to do is I want to read a portion of the Christmas story, and then I want us to come back to this whole idea and talk about how it connects with each of our lives. And so I'm going to read in just a few moments, not quite yet, but from the book of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, you can kind of get it ready. And we're going to look at Luke's account of the Christmas story. And really quick, if you're like new to church if you're new to Christianity, if you're kind of here because it's December and it's kind of, you think it's kind of what you should do, you know, maybe a once a year, I'm just going to give you a little background. The Bible, it's not really a book, and it's not really a collection of books. It's really a collection of ancient manuscripts, and they were put together, <clears throat> excuse me, in a book or a binder so that they were convenient. You know, we could pick it up, we could read it. It could be portable, and one of those ancient manuscripts was written in the first century by a man named Luke, and Luke decided he needed to put together an orderly account of the life of Jesus so that the people who were coming along behind that generation would be able to understand what happened. And you see, if for those of you who aren't really Bible people or you're kind of skeptical, you haven't picked up the Bible maybe in years you kind of have this image of why the Bible may not be worth reading, and it may be based on perception or something someone told you, but I want you to listen to how this ancient first century document begins and to see if it sounds like a fairy tale to you. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He writes, many, not just me. Many have sat down and tried to put together the account of these events. And it's kind of like, Luke, were you there? Yes, this happened in my lifetime. This wasn't passed down through generations to him. Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And so, Luke, you got this from other people who saw it happen? Yeah. Verse 3, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. Okay, this doesn't sound like once upon a time in a city of Bethlehem. This doesn't sound like, you know, a long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, does it? This doesn't sound like abandon your brain, use your imagination. Um, this doesn't even sound like religious talk. Here's a guy who said, I've investigated this. I've talked to eyewitness, eyewitnesses. I want to make sure somebody writes down an orderly account so that future generations could know what happened here in our midst. It's powerful. I bet there's some in here who may not have even known that was in the Bible. You just have assumptions about whatever that you may have heard, but Luke is wanting to be intentional about this. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month 
of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and Elizabeth was one of Mary's relatives, uh, mother of Jesus, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And I just want to pause there real quick. Again, we get really used to this story. Many of you could probably tell this story in general, general, but put yourself in this context. She's not used to speaking to angels, okay? She's a teenager. She, she wouldn't be legally allowed to do a lot of things if she lived here. Uh, I mean, she wouldn't be thought of as someone who probably um, has the gravity to handle a tough situation, let alone this. And then this next phrase, I just don't even know how to explain this, but if this were a movie, imagine the drama. Imagine the soundtrack. Imagine everything that hung on this next phrase as Luke is writing this down. Again, we get used to it, but they didn't know until he said it. He said the virgin's name was Mary. And Luke is trying to tell a story. He's trying to capture what happened. He had no idea what was going to happen in the future as a result of him and others telling the story. Cathedrals would be built. Wars would be fought. Buildings all over the world would be built. Missionaries would be sent. Books would be written. Heretics would be burned. People would give their life to get this document out of the first century. Others would give their lives in order to have this translated into a language that the common man could read and understand. And Luke in the first century is probably like, I don't know about that. I'm just trying to make sure we get a real account of this so that next generation could know about it. But he writes, the virgin's name is Mary. And you see, we really don't know much about Mary. Like, again, she's probably really young, and her life, if, you know, from what we understand about those times, it's probably p- pretty planned out, arranged marriage. Uh, she may not have even met Joseph yet. I mean, there's really the chance of that. And so they would live wherever their parents told them to live and do whatever their parents told her, told her to do. They would live out their life in obscurity, maybe. No one would ever know her name because she grew up in a place, dusty place in the middle of nowhere. Back then, people didn't really care much about Israel. That was the trajectory of her life before that moment. But God, in this period of history, had decided to touch down and to remind her, to remind you, and to remind me, thanks to Luke, that God is a God who's involved. And what may seem random to us is purposeful in his mind, and that's why you seek purpose in your life. Verse 28, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. We'll get back to that statement in a moment. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this may be. Can you just imagine what she's thinking? You know, she's like, I've never seen an angel. The Lord is with me. Are are you the Lord? What's going on here? And then the angel continues. He's, he's telling her it's good news. Verse 30, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Why? Why do you ask that? Because she was probably terrified. You have found favor with God. You have found favor with God. And now this next part, just have to pause. And there's a lot of chaos happening right now with Mary. There's a lot of randomness that's going on just as this is coming upon her. And he says this with certainty. There's a lot of will. There's a lot of certainty. There's not a lot of maybes and hopefully and you never knows, okay? He says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. 
I'm telling you, if she had the presence of mind, which I think none of us would in this moment, just because of the the gravity and the intensity of it, if she had the presence of mind to think about it, I I think that word kingdom probably would have thrown her off. Whoa, 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 his kingdom will never end? Israel hasn't been independent in like four or five hundred years. And I'm going to have a son who's going to have a kingdom that's never going to end? Who would believe that? Who could believe that? I'm just... I'm just a young girl. I'm going to have a son, and I'll die, and they'll never know we existed. But she wasn't worried about the kingdom word. She was worried about something else, what anyone in that situation would be worried about. She says in verse 34, How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The virgin birth, right? And Luke's writing this in a language that Mary didn't even speak, so Luke had to translate and choose words that are difficult. And he used words that... (laughs) Preachers, pastors, theologians, Bible study leaders for years, they just don't dwell on this. The whole virgin birth is complicated, and, and to some it gets a little weird. But she's asking the same question that any teenage girl would ask when she's told, you're going to have a baby while remaining a virgin. And so the angel continues, and it says the angel answered in verse 35, Well, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born, and get this, Luke's writing this down. This is great. He says, so the Holy One will be born. He will be called the Son of God. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's not an earth-shattering statement to you. In fact, I'm going to do a quick survey, and I'm going to pick on you if you don't raise your hand or if, you're, if you uh, opt out because you don't want to raise your hand. But if you heard the phrase Son of God connected with Jesus before walking to this room at some point in your life, just put your hand in the air. Just put your hand, that's, look around, like, look, okay. I mean, it's like obvious, right? It's like obvious. We, we, we've heard that. We know that. But that's what Luke said was going to happen. That was blasphemy then. Here we are 2,000 years later. You hear Jesus, Son of God, it doesn't surprise you. But you know how surprising that seemed to Mary? Do you know how blasphemous that seemed to Mary? Mary, teenage girl, you're going to have this baby, yes, as a virgin, and here's what his reputation is going to be, son of God. And it happened, and here we are halfway around the world, and that doesn't surprise one of us. Verse 36, Luke chapter 1. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to, that's certainty, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month, and look at this, Sorry, is in her sixth month, pardon me, for no word from God will ever fail. To get a little context of what's going here, it's been about 400 years since the Jews heard from God. Theologians call it 400 years of silence, 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and when Jesus showed up, 400 years of silence. There wasn't a lot of silence in the world you know, during those 400 years, some amazing things happened. The Babylonian Empire rose and fell, even though people thought, oh, that's going to last forever. The Persian Empire rose up, and I'm sure people in those days thought, that's everything. How, how is that ever going to fall? But it did. Then Alexander the Great came along, Hellenized the world, and they thought Greece is forever. And then eventually Rome came along, and this is when Mary was living, and everyone thought Rome 
was forever. And it's almost like God showed up in history and says, hey, you don't understand. This isn't about the plans of man. This isn't about the now. It's about how the will of God will transpire. And every one of these empires, every one of these kingdoms came and went by my declaration. And while you look at details, you look at the history, and, and <clears throat> you may not see my hand, but understand life is not random. He's the God of purpose and everything happens according to his will. But then Mary's life got back to normal after the angel left. In fact, her life probably went more to abnormal or subnormal because Gabriel uh, records show, or based off what we know, never showed up to her again. I bet she wished he had because she was a pregnant teenage girl with no explanation as to why she was pregnant. And I know... Um, People probably didn't feel as entitled as I can feel or that we can feel in our society. I know, you know, they probably dealt with a lot more difficulty. You know, we, we could have a tough day and ask why, and others have a tough decade there and kind of get used to it. But I guarantee you there were days, I'm sure there were days where she's like, um, Angel, Angel, uh, I kind of need your help. God, I, I need a little help. I need to explain this to my mom. And she's not buying it, Okay. I need to explain this to my teacher. I need to explain this to my synagogue. I need to explain this to my fiancé, who I don't really know. And so eventually, so the context here is just the weight of this on her in this season. After the angel, you're highly favored. Everything's going to be great. Here's what's going to happen. The weight of it on her had to be enormous. Eventually, she met Joseph. And fortunately, Joseph had a little heads up on what was going to happen. And then talk about bad timing. Caesar Augustus uh, proclaimed that the, uh, everyone needed to register, go home and register for the census. And Joseph's kind of like, okay, Mary, I got bad news and I got like really bad news. First, we have to go to Bethlehem far away and register for the census. Secondly, I don't really have a great way to get you there other than riding on a donkey, okay? And so now, Miss Favored of God, remember, she's the favorite of, of God. That's what the angel said. God knows your name. You're special. Well, Miss Favored of God is going to take a donkey ride for 120 miles while she's pregnant, okay? I mean, if this would have happened today, we would have arranged an SUV. I mean, that's how we work with dignitaries, special people. We would have arranged an SUV that's comfortable, and you know there would be a reservation when she got there. And so all of that, you think about the chaos in the story, and she has to have asked the question, why did you allow this to happen? God, why would you allow this to happen? And then she gets a heads up, and she finds out that Herod has a decree because he found out about a king being born, and he's angry. And we come to that tragic part of the Christmas story that we really can't even pause to think about for very long because it's so unsettling. It has the ability to overcome all the romance that we associate with Christmas because one particular day, maybe it was a morning at as people were waking up their kids and getting ready for that day, Herod's soldiers showed up at the end of town and they slaughtered every child under two in the town where they thought Jesus lived. And by the end of that day, every single parent with children two years old and under had their babies ripped out of their arms and killed in a random, senseless, purposeless expression of jealousy. And for the rest of her life, Mary lived knowing that whereas God warned her and saved her little baby, he didn't do anything to rescue those other children that she was aware of from that little town. What's, 
What's the purpose of that? What's the point in that? God, if you warned me, couldn't you have sent Gabriel to kill Herod or to, or to warn others? And wouldn't there be ways around this? And so what they ended up doing, they fled to Egypt to avoid that. They went a couple hundred miles, and then they finally uh, came back at a different point. But you know there had to be dozens or hundreds or thousands of moments where, where she's just like, what's the purpose here? And then years go by, and Mary would experience the most unimaginable pain of any parent that they could experience, that they could ever experience as she stood outside a courtyard and she could hear her son beaten to within an inch of his life. And she saw the gore. She smelled it. She was there. She saw him with the crown of thorns being dragged out into the street and forced to carry a part of his cross before he could breathe his last breath. And his mother watched her son die. You know, we can romanticize it, you know, Christmas, we know it all worked out, but she stood there and watched it. Miss, highly favored of God, miss, the Lord is with you, miss, his kingdom will never, ever end and it will never fail. But in those moments, she had to feel like you feel. Why is this happening? In that case, it was just another random act of Roman violence with no good end in sight. And yet, had God lost control? No. You see, what was crazy about this is this was the very epicenter in these moments where she's feeling more alone, probably uh, more confused, like there's less purpose and less reason for what's going on. At that time, it was the epicenter of his activity, the moment when it looked like everything was lost and God had lost control. It was at the crosshairs of God's greatest involvement in the world when he sent his son into the world to pay for our sins. That thing in you that wants order, that thing in you that wants purpose, that thing in you that wants everything to work out for good, to somehow make sense, that's the thumbprint of God. That's the design of God. And on Christmas, we're reminded that even when it seems random, even when it seems purposeless, even when it seems no good, even when that illness is unredeemable or that death is unredeemable or that situation in your marriage is unredeemable, you think there's nothing good that can come from this. And there's no way this is part of some big plan. At Christmas, we're reminded God with us. You may not make sense of it, but you can know that God is with us. He came down. And that thumbprint of God in you wants it to fit together, fit together, and it's confirmed at Christmas as God sent a son into the world, this purposeless, seeming, random world, to do an extraordinary thing. About 25 years after that, the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he had the benefit that Mary did not in the story of hindsight. He had the benefit of theological training. He had the benefit of just a whole lot more than she had in that moment. And he writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, just, just sums this up so well. He wrote, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of of his will. That's like a theological meat sandwich. We'll try to break it down a little bit. In him, in Jesus, this is the technical way of talking about what we've talked about. In him, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan who works out everything. You know what everything means? Everything. Who works out everything in conformity with the purpose 
There's that word. That's what you long for. That's what I long for. This is the order we long for. It's the, I want to make sense of it that we long for with the purpose of his will. You see, Mary didn't say it like Paul did. Didn't have the training, didn't have the hindsight. She's, you know, in the moment. But when the angel Gabriel finished with her, when the angel Gabriel finished telling Mary, this is what's going to happen. This is what you have to look forward to. I mean, it sounds positive in the beginning, but you think about it. It's a real challenge. She didn't have any of the details. She didn't know about the donkey ride. She didn't know about Herod. She didn't know about the slaughter. She didn't know that one day she would see her son dragged away and crucified. She didn't know that one day he would rise from the dead. And she didn't know that 2,000 years later, we would gather, others around the world would gather in her son's name at least once a week to worship him. She didn't know that one third of the world's population would know his name. And when they heard her son's name, they would think son of God. She didn't know any of that in this moment. So at the end of her conversation with the angel, she said what I hope you can say and I hope I can say in this moment. Verse 38, in response to all the angels said, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I am the Lord's servant. And another version says, may it be according to your word. You know what the big takeaway as I think about this is, you know, I don't know about your background of faith, how it's been defined for you. Maybe you grew up in a church uh, where you were taught that faith is what moves God. And I don't want to get into a big theological tussle or anything, but I'm just convinced that perfect faith is not faith that moves God. I believe perfect faith is the faith that moves us to trust God even when he's not moving. Perfect faith is the faith that moves us to trust God even when when it doesn't seem like he's moving. It's the faith that, yeah, you know, we met just like I planned. We got engaged just like I planned. We got married just like I planned. We had the birth of our child just like I planned. But then the divorce came. And life handed me a job loss. And life handed me things that I didn't plan. And my desire isn't to move God back into my plan for my life. And my faith is designed to help me trust God in spite of the fact that he isn't moving according to my plan. Perfect faith is what Mary says. Perfect faith says this, I am your servant, may it be according to your word. Lord, it's an uncertain time. I don't know why this is why it is. I'm your servant. May it be to me according to your word. And here's the good news. Regardless of what life has handed you, regardless of what you're experiencing, that thing in you that wants to find purpose there, that's a good thing. That's the thumbprint of God. It's a reminder that God is active in this world. And as the Apostle Paul said, everything, everything, everything is ultimately in accordance in conformity with his purpose in this world. So in light of that, here's how I'd like to, us to close our time today. For some of you, you would say, past couple weeks, past couple months as we've approached this season, I've been handed something I wasn't expecting. For some of you, it might have been a job loss. For some of you, all of a sudden, you know, there's tension in your family. It could be this has been happening for a long time, and you didn't see it coming. It could be your health. It could be the health of someone you love. It could be the health of a child. You know, you're staring at something, and you look at your life and wonder, Mark, where does this go? God, where does this go? Because I wasn't anticipating it. I don't know where it fits, and I don't want it to fit. 
but it's difficult right now for me to trust God with it staring in my faith. It's very difficult to trust God because of all the uncertainty this brings to the life of my kids, into my marriage, into my career, into my future. I don't know what to do about this, but I want to be able to pray with Mary that I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And I want God to redeem this for good. Wouldn't that ultimately be the best prayer to pray?